That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. A one, two, three, four. Welcome to another episode of Insights. Today we sit down with Justin Kreutzman to chat about his new documentary, Let There Be Drums. Justin is the son of Grateful Dead drummer, Bill Kreutzman, and grew up around famous band members like Jerry Garcia. Justin grew up in an incredibly creative environment, but instead of following in his father's musical footsteps, he fell in love with the camera and ultimately became a documentary filmmaker. We sit down with Justin to discuss his life as the child of a rock and roll drummer, learning about filmmaking from the likes of Martin Scorsese, and making his recent documentary film, Let There Be Drums. The documentary explores the essential role that drums play in great bands. And to do that, he interviewed legendary drummers like Ringo Starr, Stuart Copeland, Mickey Hart, Taylor Hawkins, his own father, and others, along with the children of legendary drummers like John Bonham and Keith Moon. We're excited to have Justin on the show today to hear more about what it takes to direct such an amazing documentary. So where are you? Are you in California or where are you? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah, because I saw, um, I watched the film and I saw your dad's place in Hawaii and I was wondering if you actually spend any time in Hawaii or you're mostly in the States. Well, we had, we had to, we had to get a film made to go over and visit. Now we we go over there every now and again, but um, yeah, he lives, he lives in paradise and uh, I live in Los Angeles. So, you know, (laughs) draw draw your own conclusions. Well, you know, LA can be its own uh, paradise. Depends on what you make of it, right? Um, uh, I'm going to stick with that one because I have to see my neighbors every day. So, yep, you're right. I live <laughs> in paradise. But I'm from Northern California, so I'm not that far from, uh, you know, where it all started. Well, so we're going to talk about Let There Be Drums. Uh, it was a great documentary. I really enjoyed how personal it was. Um, but I kind of wanted to go back a little ways and talk sure. a little bit about you and your career and how you got into filmmaking. Um, so you said you grew up in Northern California, where exactly? Well, I was born in San Francisco, but I grew up in Marin County, uh, which if anybody knows anything about the Grateful Dead, is sort of the real home of the Grateful Dead is uh, San Rafael and Marin. So um, I split my time between there and Mendocino County. So very, very Northern California and um, found out the film business wasn't about to move to Northern California. So that's what uh, how I landed here in Los Angeles. So how old were you when you realized that your father, Bill Kreutzman, was a member of one of the biggest bands in the, in the world. That had to be a realization for you. Yeah, you know, I got the therapy bills. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I can remember, well, I mean, you, you know, it was always, you know, I always knew it. I, I didn't have any idea that anybody else cared anything about them. They were just the guys that hung out with dad a lot. And I must have been in third grade and a teacher brought me up in front of the class and had a news clipping from the San Francisco Chronicle about the Grateful Dead. And I put it together that, oh, those are all the guys from the house and everybody like that that was like a big deal. And nobody else's parents in in the class I happened to be in had jobs that the teacher was doing that for. So it made one, it embarrassed me, but two, it made me. I just I just felt like, oh, dad must be doing some something that people find special. I, I don't see it personally, but 
Apparently it's enough for my, for my teacher. And that, that's like when the, the light bulb sort of dawned. And then you realize, yeah, you've been going to this place called Winterland and there's been 6,000 people cheering. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess yeah. <laughs> there must be something to that music thing. So right, right around third grade is when, when uh, the light bulb finally stopped dimming and I, I got it. So did fame or his fame actually impact your family at all? Were you able to just go anywhere you wanted to go or did it limit oh, yeah. you and... Yeah, I mean, it's not like he was Jerry Garcia or anything. I mean, the Grateful Dead's kind of fame was probably the the, the best kind you can have. Because while, of course, you know, they were a very popular group. And as the decades grew on, they started playing stadiums and got more and more famous. It wasn't that what I imagine that Bob Dylan Beatles kind of fame is where you can't leave your house. I mean, it was different for Jerry because he was such the focal point of everything. But for me and my dad, you know, um, it was just the normal. You know, my dad was the catcher on my softball little league team, and the only thing that made it weird was the coach kept saying, "Hey, do you think the other guys in the band would come down and play?" And my dad's like, "Wow, this guy is really misguided about father son bonding." But um, so you know, it's it's that kind of thing. Like if, I always felt if you if you bought into that stuff too much you're just it doesn't make for being a very nice person i mean it just there was that was just the job they did it was a really cool job and everybody was so felt so lucky that they got to do what they loved for a living that um you know the the fame was kind of like the and as the fame grew that was kind of almost the worst part of it you know everything else was cooler than being famous like not like that wasn't the idea it was about making music. And so that really instilled in me that it, it's about the work and doing what you love, not about, you know, being in the San Francisco Chronicle. I was going to say there's a, you know, there's a downside to fame, obviously. There's an upside and a downside. And I always think that you're doing something that you love, but along with it comes all that, that all that goes with fame in some cases, which can be tough, but you can't really say it's tough because no one would believe you. That, well, uh... <laughs> the hardship. I had to take all those private planes <laughs> and stay in all those really nice hotels. Oh, yes. my life. So what an agony. Yeah. And no, some people actually had a hard life. I mean, I, I got nothing to complain about. Let me tell you, it, it's been really good. Was there always music in your household? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Music was, uh, if it wasn't being played live, it was being listened to or talked about or watched on tv and um yeah music music was always the thing it was the reason everybody got together uh be it any kind of holiday or any any normal sort of family gathering it usually re related to music or band meetings so i was just like the you know the proverbial fly on the wall and it sort of set me up for being you know what i did later in documentaries because i got really good at just sort of being quiet and I, I didn't want to impact the moment. And, and you know, when you're a little kid, you, you know, what what are you going to say to like the Jefferson airplane? I don't know. You know, I didn't really, you know, they were, they, they were having really funny discussions and I just enjoyed listening to the people interact as opposed to trying to get my point across. So, so it was a good, it was a good setup for being a, a fly on the wall documentary guy. So being, speaking of being a fly on the wall, did you actually go on tour with the band when you were a kid? I did. I did. Um, I mean, the first show I ever went to was Woodstock and I was three months old then. And I have no idea why my parents took me to Woodstock, but I, I was there. And um, because the Grateful Dead toured so much and, and were always playing shows, that was really a way to keep the family together. And uh, I know that sounds really like really rock and roll and all that kind of stuff, but it's true. 
and and if, if they weren't on tour it was about getting ready for tour and or doing the next album so that was that was the best way and that's and everybody else's kids were there so it was like that was how the 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 my Kreutzmann family and my larger Grateful Dead family all got to see each other and friends and like the Bill Graham family and all, all the different offshoots um, that were around the, the music scene. That's how we all sort of grew up together. And that that's the, that's the kids you ended up hanging out with that also you didn't have to explain anything to, cause they were going through it too. So it was like, um, you could just be pals. Well, and we're going to get to get to this in a little bit later in the interview um, about let there be drums, because you actually talk about talk to the kids and interview the kids about their fathers or, you know, what it was like to be a kid. So what was it like to be a kid in that rock and roll environment? Well, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I got to tell you, you know, you, you, first of all, you knew where your parents were because one of them was up on stage playing. So you knew you could get away <laughs> with a lot of stuff backstage. And a lot of times, like, and then this is so funny because, you know, people tried so hard to get into Grateful Dead shows and, you know, there never was enough tickets. And like, all the kids and I were like sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to make some analogy to like Lord of the Flies or something like that. But I mean, we were like had these massive football games in the hallways of backstage, much to sh security chagrin, because that was really important to us. Like, you know, uh, playing sports and all the stuff you can get away with while your parents are working. So we had a really good time. Um not unlike, you know, other people, just ours was sort of backstage and it was in this rock and roll context. And um it was it was just you know it was an exciting it was an exciting world to be in and none of that was lost on it on any of us and um i mean it's still with me today and i try to explain to my kids like back in my day you know <laughs> we, we used to be able to do in my life like no 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 you, you know keep it keep it keep it a little don't say exactly what you guys used to do but it was the 70s so you know we had fun so at, as a kid what was jerry garcia like Oh, he was great. I really liked him. He um, he just was so devilishly smart with just this wicked sense of humor. And he never talked down to you like like you were a kid. Like he he would engage you on whatever level you were perceptive enough to appreciate on. And my funniest memory of him is I was I think I must have been five. They're doing an album called um, Blues for All up at Bob Weir's house. And he used to borrow my comic book. So I was like trying to like, you know, okay, I'll give you this one, but you know, I've got to keep the Spider-Man one. Cause you know, you never, he never gave them back. That was the thing. I never got these comic <laughs> books back. Of course not. I'm, and I'm, and I'm, so I'm, I'm bartering right for my own comics and, and we're trading, we're trading. And he's changing the guitar, the strings on his guitar. And that's the first time I ever noticed he was missing a finger. And I, you know, you're five years old. You're like, Oh my God, how did you do that? And he's like changing strings. And I'm like, that is playing guitar must be the most dangerous thing in the world. <laughs> Lose digits, just changing. Anyway, so it took me a while to figure out that, yeah, he was just joshing me. But um, yeah, he was great. He was he was he was a he was a fun guy to hang out with. So did your dad ever want you to be a drummer? He did. He did. He 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 gave me some subtle encouragement and some not so subtle encouragement. And in the film, I tell the story of coming home one day to our house in Mill Valley and there's this drum set in my room so much like, like it was filled up the entire room. Like I couldn't get around to my bed or my desk without climbing over the drum set. And I was just sort of like, dad, and it's not like I asked for the thing. And he's like, well, I could show you a couple of things. I don't know if you ever want me to show you, you know, just da, 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 da. 
And I just, you know, and I just had to break it to him. You know, I, I don't really see my future as being a drummer, but um, I would have had I would have had some really good teachers. So every now and again, I'm like, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea. But, you know, like there's already two drummers in the Grateful Dead and every kid I knew growing up wanted to be a drummer. It was like disgusting. I'm just like, really? You all want to be drummers? So I, I did something else. So I made a movie about drummers. I guess that was that. that's my uh, that's, that's the ultimate irony of that story. So when did you actually realize that you wanted to be a filmmaker? I mean, when did your interest in filmmaking begin? Well, I'd have to say uh, my dad and Mickey Hart were involved in the percussion score of Apocalypse Now. And watching the Coppolas put that movie together, um, I mean, when I first saw it, it was six hours long. So, I mean, I, I watched Apocalypse go through many incarnations and just being around Francis and his son Gio and listening to their ideas about filmmaking, most of which was lost on like a seven-year-old, it just seemed like the coolest thing. And it was like, you know, such an incredible movie that it really sparked that, that you know, like, I'm not sure what this guy's doing, but I want to do whatever he's doing. I, I'd like to try to do that. And that and that Christmas, I got a, a Super 8 camera and um, I started shooting right away. And it just... Um, it's one of those things that stuck. And I always had the fear that one day, you know, you know, what if you just don't want to do this anymore? Like, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be horrible? <laughs> like you've gone through so much <laughs> of your life learning how to do this and telling everybody you're going to be this and wanting to be that. And like, um, I don't uh, here, I've got some wood here. Not knock on, knock on wood. Um, you know, it's the passion is still with me. And when I also realized that I, I would be able to, you know, put food on the table for my children by doing my passion, uh, you know, home run. I mean, can you can you really ask for anything more? Right on. You know, your your dad obviously pursued his passion to be a drummer, and that's not exactly a regular career, <laughs> be a drummer in a rock band. So did, was he encouraging when you said, hey, I want to be a filmmaker, and that's what I'm passionate about? Yeah, well, you know, what could he really say? Like, as, as, you know, he went off to be a drummer. So what's he what's what's he going to say? He's like, you know, he, he has no have... say so in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't like he like, oh, yeah, back when I was a lawyer. Yeah, you know, I had a steady job to fall back on of this drumming thing. You know, who wasn't one of those guys? Uh, yeah, he was really encouraging. He just, you know, like like everybody, um, there's that that phase where, you know, you're you're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure out, is this just like a really expensive hobby or is this like what you're going to do? And, and and even if it's what you can do, are you, you know, are you going to be able to earn a living doing it? And I think as those questions have been answered over these many years, um, he, he's encouraged, he, he's still encouraging me uh, to, to, to keep at it. And, um, but yeah, we, um, like I said, he bought me my first Super 8 camera. Uh, we would go out and shoot little funny movies and do stop motion. And every time The Grateful Dead would play, I'd take my camera and just get some really bad, out of focus, eight-year-old kid filming footage. And, um, it was, you know, it was just, and, and so like, I'm, I, I pass that on to my kids. I, I encourage them to, you know, as long as, long as you're not hurting anybody, you know, like follow, follow whatever your passion is, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to do, do well for you in the end if that can be your vocation. Exactly. Well, well said. Um, if you can, if you can make a living out of something you love, then um, that's the ultimate, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't, I, 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 I don't have it in, I don't know if I have, I have it in me to, you know, to have like, you know, the get up every day and go do something that even though you're just like, yeah, I do this, but what I really want to be doing is this. I just, I don't think I'm that creative. I think I had to, I had, it has to, I have to wake up every day and say, wow, I get to work on a movie like that. That's cool. You know, that, that uh, I can think of a lot worse jobs. Did you actually go to school for filmmaking or was it something that you just learned along the way and on your own? Well, you know, um, I'm still learning. And when I was, uh, boy, maybe, maybe it was just before high school, maybe it was eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade, something like that. Um, I, I'd already been making little movies for years and I wanted to join the, the, the film program at whatever school I happened to be going to. And they said, no, I was too young. And that just crushed me. And also just age discrimination. Could, I'm hearing it. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like the one thing that would have kept me in school and fired up and interested. And just because I, you know, was born in June as opposed to December or whatever, what like, you know, I just, I didn't, it didn't work out. And it really just, you know, I, I, I had a chip on my shoulder about like, you know, you can't see the one thing I'm interested in. Like you wouldn't want to even just give me a little bit of encouragement. So I just, you know, and I was always already making little movies and, and, you know, hanging out with the Coppola. So like, you know, not, not on any, any kind of fame level, but just, you know, I'm hanging out with these people that I could, I'm going to watch how they do films and try to steal some of those ideas. Cause like, that's going to teach me probably more than the seventh grade, you know, AV class is going to, but <laughs> You know, I just I'd always wished that you know, that would have just given me some reason to go to school every day where I would have been fired up about something because, you know, a, a lot of the other subjects weren't really cutting it from me. So, um, you know, I, I decided uh, out of vengeance, I was going to make it my life just to show whatever teacher that was that, see, you know, like, like they'd care. But, you know. Well, so what film did you make that you would consider your first kind of real film that you put out there in the universe for other people to see? Oh, and this is embarrassing, embarrassing to say. And this is where I should have like one of those cards that says like, you know, nepotism <laughs> has its privileges. Um, I'll give you the whole the whole backstory because it's, it's involved Jerry and it's pretty funny. I was on tour with my dad in the spring of 87 and I had been working just as like a um, part-time job on the In the Dark Grateful Dead record, which had the song Touch of Grey on it. And the last show of the tour, Arista Records came by with Clive Davis and the whole important gang and they're like, you know, hey, man, well, they wouldn't have said that. I don't think Clive Davis said, hey, man, that much. But he's like, you know, we need to make a music video. And so the band's like, yeah, <laughs> Grateful Dead doing a music video. Right. That, that's not a great idea. <laughs> and he's like, even better. We want to do a making of the music video. And they all laughed. And they're just like, there's no way that we're going to do that. And that, I remember Jerry looked over at me and he's like, all right, we'll do it. But Justin has to do the making of and all the heads turned to the 17 year old kid who was like, like, what, what wait, what did, what did he just say? <laughs> like that? And so, yeah, it's called the making of the touch of gray video. And it was, uh, it came out on Arista's home video label. And if you can believe this, it went to number one for a month, which I couldn't, you know, I, I, I couldn't, it was, you know, and I'm just like, you know, it's, and then it's a terrible little, I mean, it's okay, but I mean, it's, it's, trust me, it's not, it's not some of my finest work. But that's that's really the the, the first official um, project that, that ever came out. It's a little half-hour documentary about the making of a Grateful Dead music video. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. 
Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Um, What's funny about that is you're only 17, but that's the kind of project that someone would dream to get. Uh, I wish I could do it again. I wish I could go back and do it, like, and do all the things I, I know now. But what's so funny, I'm still, like, uh, you know, uh, I'm getting, I'm in the middle of doing a, a Jerry Garcia documentary right now, and I'm still mining that for material because we shot it all in 16 millimeter. I know this is fascinating stuff, but it's still a source, uh, uh, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Use some of those making of shots. So it's, it's, it's in the end, it's, it's, done, it's done me very well. Well, so you direct or produced a number of films, including a couple of, you know, the documentary videos, the dead documentaries, and also a documentary about the late John Entwistle, who was a bassist for The Who. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know from the start that you'd be focused a lot on rock and roll type of um, content? Or did that just happen because of who you were and uh, the son of someone who was in such an iconic band? Um, the, again, with the nepotism, no, it... Um... Well, music, I, I always loved music and, and and listening to music and working with music and, and tried to use anything I might have learned from being around my dad and his band about rhythm and editing. I just never wanted to play music. And so I was always drawn to those stories because that's that's what I knew. And that that like, like we were talking about earlier, the the musicians I knew were decidedly different than most of the other people I knew in society. They always had the interesting stories. They always did the craziest stuff for good and for bad. And so that, that's the kind of stuff, you know, I was like, wow, you know, the, those are kind of funny. And yes, because that was the world I was in, you know, like when I want to make a drummer doc, one, I knew a lot of the people, but two, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was making something on the Apollo or, you know, nuclear physics or something where I don't, you know, who am I going to call <laughs> to be in this movie? Who's going to, who's going to know who my, what my, who's, who my dad is that they might say, oh yeah, we'll be in your, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. Um, and I, I just, I, I like music. It, it gives me a way to, to work intimately with music and musicians and get whatever musical creativity I have out without actually having to play it. So um not that not, but it's not like this is all I do. You know, I just it's just, this. These are the jobs I get. Um, if anybody's so got something else out there, give me a call. You know. Well, in 2017, you actually did the film "Long Long Strange Trip" with Martin Scorsese as um, executive producer. And what was it like to work with him? Well, it was uh, Martin and his team. It was just you know, I mean, beyond respect. I mean, I mean, I mean. I, I always tell people like the absolute coolest part besides learning and putting the film together is on the poster. My name's right next to his. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was great. You know, doing any time that, that, that Mr. Scorsese, Mr. Scorsese lends his name to a project. And, and when you, it's not just him, you get his team. That's the thing. You get these people who really know what they're doing on a really extreme level. So having access to that was, was, was really an honor and exciting. And it also just ramps up the film in terms of prestige. Cause now you have, you know, the guy who did raging bulls is part of your film. And, um, and the funny thing about uh, the, I have a, one really funny story about being at the Coppola's one night and hanging out with all the kids and Francis, you know, Francis like Garcia would, would always like to come in and mess with you. And he comes in and he's like, 
yeah, you know, this kid sent me this film. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's no good. Maybe. I don't know. So we watch it and it's this great student film. We're like, wow, this is amazing. And then at the end, it says directed by Martin Scorsese. And we're like, Doris <laughs> Francis. He's like, yeah, see, I knew that, you know, there was something Martin had done. It's called The Big Shave. And anyway, it was just like, that's all, um, yeah, you know, what, 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 could, what could be bad about it, you know? Well, what was the impetus for making the film at that at that time? I mean, what what sort of um, obviously you could have done that that same film any time, but but why then? Uh, Long Strange Trip, you're talking about? Mm -hmm. um, well, that, I mean, that didn't start with me. I, I was a hired gun on that. That that was just uh, some devoted deadheads that wanted to see the Grateful Dead story played out in some sort of documentary. And we had done the Bob Weir doc uh, just before that. And it's, you know, it was, um, I mean, we're kind of in the heat of it now with, with, with documentary fever. Every, everybody, everybody in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was definitely getting a doc. And everybody was looking around to like, which story hasn't really been told yet. And, um, you know, uh, it sort of got the ball rolling. And I, I was like the, the, you know, I was like the person the filmmakers had to deal with. Like the band's like, okay, yeah, well, if you, you know, you want us, you got to work with Justin, which says a lot for my, my talent and ability. But I know what they meant. I was basically, you know, making sure that, that things went as smoothly as possible. And also letting the filmmakers get, give, give them some inside access to different stuff. So we all became a team and it was great, but it wasn't... Um, you know, I, I definitely wasn't sitting around saying, like, you know, I want to do a film about my dad. I do enough of those already. But I think, you know, it turned out well. Yeah, well, it was funny. I was reading some of the the critics, and I, I, a lot of them said the same thing, which was, I went to look at this film and uh, watch the film, and I came away with a greater appreciation for The Grateful Dead than when I started, even though I knew they were such a great band to begin with, or some people weren't that familiar and came away with an appreciation. And that's got to be very, very gratifying as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the, that's kind of the home run goal. You, I mean, especially with a band like, like the Dead or the Who or the, any, any of those bands that have massive followings, you already know you have somewhat of an audience built in and hopefully those people are going to love it. But, you know, I, I always say that, you know, you know, in 100 years when somebody wants to watch something to find out, like, you know, what was this band? What was the big deal about this band? If there's like one documentary or one thing or one record that you can put on and listen to that really sums it all up, that people are like, oh, I get it. I totally understand why there's such a big fuss made about these people. And so I think that's what you always set out to do in these kind of documentaries is and, you know, blow the fans' minds by showing them something they haven't seen or stories they didn't know or da-da-da-da-da. But then just get people that even if, like, the music, even if, like, the music isn't something they're really drawn to, that the story about the, the humans behind it are is enough to engage them. So it's just, you know, I mean, it uh, that's kind of like the biggest compliment, you know. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was you kind of hope Deadheads will like it. <laughs> right. Well, a question about Deadheads. So... Has your dad ever said, um, did it ever surprise the band that they had such an incredible following? I mean, as in people who follow you from town to town to town to town to see you over and over and over again. Um, not many bands, bands have that, right? Um, there are a lot of fans of bands. And when they come to town, you go see them, but not a group of fans that will literally get in their car or fly to places and see you everywhere. And so was that surprising to them? Well, well. 
Jerry Garcia has a, has a great quote about that where he's like, we've been surprised the first time there was more people out in the audience than there was on stage. You know, like, it, you know, and it, it's amazing because, you know, more bands I think are doing it now, but uh, for a while, the Grateful Dead were one of the only bands that like, it was a completely different show every night. So, you know, if you saw them at the beginning of the tour, you know, you could see them every show and not see the same one. And I, I don't know how many band in the rock and roll world we're doing that in 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 the sixties and seventies, um, and so it, it, that lent itself to to going to multiple shows, and they encouraged taping. There's just a lot of things that they did internally, and sort of made Grateful Dead policy that then that lent itself to longevity and a growing fan base. And believe me, none of this was like thought about, like they didn't sit around and have a board meeting and said, you know what, we should do it like this. Cause we're going <laughs> to grow our fan. It was just sort of like, let people tape. Yeah, sure. Why not? It's easier than trying to stop them. You know what I mean? It was just like, you know, so all this kind of stuff that <laughs> fell into their world then became sort of, you know, Oh, this is the way the grateful dead did it. And they were so successful. And it was just sort of, you know, you know, luck plays a big part in a lot of things in life. And, and um, I mean, Deadheads are like the best audience you could ever have in the world. I mean, they're they're like, that's why um, people who don't know, like, they're like, oh, so are you like a big Deadhead? And I'm like, I would be insulted if I was a Deadhead and I called myself a Deadhead. Like, I never had to, like, sell burritos to get to a show. Like, you know, I, I never had to, like, you know, work for it. So it was all just presented to me and it was a luxury. I got to go to all this stuff. You know, deadheads are really a special group of people, so I would never want to insult them by calling myself a deadhead. Well, it's funny, like you said, it wasn't as if the band sought out to do things a certain way. It's how they did it. And they didn't realize they were inventing a whole new way of, of playing. That's just who they were, um, which actually does bring me to Let There Be Drums, because I did have a question about okay. that, which is um, it's your latest film. Um, great documentary. Thank what you. Uh, struck me really was um, the beautiful story being told um, many times through the children of the drummers themselves um, and the drummers. Uh, but uh, the Grateful Dead had two drummers. And um, that that's not a normal thing, sp speaking of reinventing or inventing something. So why did they um, choose to have two drummers? I just think to make themselves crazy for the rest of time, let's have like two <laughs> compete. Now, oh, you know, you, you'd really, you'd really have to ask them. Um, it was, you know, it was a definitely, it was a, it was a unique thing. Uh, and, and Mickey came around in 1967 and Grateful Dead music at that time was very adventurous. Not that it ever, ever lost that, but in particular, they were really experimenting with odd time signatures and really, doing stuff I mean, you know they're playing the Fillmore and there was acid tests and there was just a lot of you know it's the summer of love there was a lot of a lot of cool craziness going on and like you said i mean like in, you know no other band around that time had two drummers um I, I remember my dad saying like when they first started playing with the almond brothers that was like the first time they played with another band we're like oh yeah so we're not crazy like look and look some another well, at least <laughs> one other band has two drummers but um you know, it, it, it lent itself, the, 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 especially the style of music they're playing in in the, the late 60s really lent itself to to that kind of thing. And Mickey brought a whole new level of percussion and understanding to what my dad was doing. And they really played off each other so well that it just, it just you know, it became, you know, why wouldn't you? I mean, you have two guitar players, you know. 
Yeah, well, it seems like two drummers lends itself even more to improvisational music just because yeah, you know, the basis what, is rhythm. If one of them falls down, the other one's there, you know, and it's like, you, <laughs> you know, always have a backup. <laughs> drum solos are a lot more interesting with two guys as opposed to one. Yeah. So, Right. Well, you feature so many amazing drummers in the film. Ringo Starr, Mickey Hart, Stuart Copeland, your father, Bill Kreutzman, Stephen Perkins, Chad Smith, Matt Sorum. It just goes on and on. Did you have a particular story that you were trying to tell or did the story kind of evolve as you interviewed people? It evolved. Um, it actually involved a great deal. Originally, I had just thought this was kind of because, you know, everybody's got like their favorite drummer joke and, and usually the drummers don't do too well in the drummer jokes. But I just thought that we'd do this funny movie about, you know, all the crazy drummer stories and we'd, we'd get like, you know, the, the the Keith Moon smashing hotel rooms and the, you know, da 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 da. And, and I blame, I, I, I definitely blame Taylor Hawkins for this. Um, he, and you see it in the film, but he stopped and he's like, you know, I don't know if this is for your docu documentary, but how stable was your home life? And I was just, and then we started having a conversation and not that, you know, the 20 questions that I'd asked him before he didn't answer well, when it was something he was starting to engage in, it really sort of picked up and went somewhere different because it wasn't just asking him about the Foo Fighters or different things. And I found most everybody, depending on how well I knew or didn't know them, was was interested in some level in Grateful Dead World or what it was like. And so you could sort of, you know, trade rock and roll stories. It wasn't just, you know, uh, sitting there and asking your questions. And it also got uh, way more personal and emotional. Like I, I, I think the worst pitch in the world would have been, Hey, let's do a story about our famous rock and roll dads. You know, like that just sounds lame. I mean, you know, who wants to, you know, who wants to do that? But those stories were so emotional and strong. It really informed how, how to put the film together. Cause that was the stuff that, you know, while there is funny stuff and there's, you know, drum stuff, this was never going to be how you play drums. It's more the feeling in the heart that these drummers have that made them want to play. And so that lent itself to family dynamics. And that's the only reason I'm actually in the film much to it. You know, it's like hearing your voice on the, on the answering machine. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, a, I, you know, that's why, that's why I became a director. So I could be on, on the other side of the camera and not, not, not really, you know, doing this stuff. But, you know, if you didn't know who they were talking to, you know, it it wouldn't have, you know, you would have lost some of that stuff. So it, that's why it became a lot more personal and, and, and it became a better film. It's not just a sort of a long drummer joke. It's it's a, it's really it's a it's a it's a film about family disguised as a film about drummers. They just, you know, the family members just all happen to have rhythm in common. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You know, it was an interesting question that Taylor asked you. Do you think he was asking it because he has kids himself? And so he was wondering what his kids' perspective were going to be later in life? Or um, why do you think he asked you that question? 
Well, well, first of all, he, he's the uh, the biggest rock fan I, 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 I've ever met. And, you know, he's just fascinated with every band and, and what they played and songs. And he just he just loved it and loved it and loved it. And his wife uh, was a big he's a big jam band fan, I, I was told. And so he he was teasing me, saying, you know, whenever we go over to our friend's house, you know, they put on the dead and they start throwing energy at each other and, da, 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 you know, and, and you just like, he would roll his eyes and I just be like, Oh man, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, you know, ha- having to like sit through it's like, no, no. And that made me get into it. And then he went to a show. So, yeah, I think he just asked cause he, he was genuinely curious and I, we had met a couple times, but we didn't really know each other that well. So it wasn't like he and I had ever had that conversation before. So it was really, you know, it was really fun to sort of have it on camera. And and like I said, it just was so, it, it, it felt like where somebody start, you know, somebody gets uplifted and starts talking about something they're actually interested in and, and, and takes it out of just the, oh, I'm answering another question about the Foo Fighters kind of territory. And, um, and, and, and you know, he was great. And uh, he invited me to his house where we shot the interview and that's why his kids were there. And everybody, you know, was very, I, I recognized the family element, you know, right away. And it felt very, very natural and they're all very sweet people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope he wasn't looking to me for any kind of, kind of, kind of advice. Cause you know, that that's a dead end road. So, you know, if you're coming <laughs> to me for advice, you know, you're in big trouble, but a uh, really, really sweet guy, and and like I said, just such a such a huge music music fan. I think, um, and then later he he talked about like he he was again asking me what it was like sitting behind my dad and watching them play all the shows, and he loves it when his kids were sitting behind and watching, and you know it's all stuff we used in the movie, but all, that all that's all the stuff that just came up. It wasn't like I was like, tell me about your kids. What you know, it was that's what you know. I guess that's the Grateful Dead in me. I just loved all the stuff that we sort of just came up as we were doing it as opposed to what I had meticulously thought out for weeks and weeks. Well, and kudos to you as a filmmaker, because the emotions came out of a lot of these folks as you interviewed them, um, whatever that may be. And uh, you interviewed Jason Bonham, for example, who's John Bonham's son, Mandy Moon, who's Keith Moon's daughter. Uh, What did their perspective bring to the film? And I, I was kind of struck by how honest they were because they didn't beat around the bush. You, you and me both like that's, <laughs> that's why uh, you know I, I um you know I mean how could I not be honest about, about my life and my family when you have Jason Bonham talking about the last time he ever spoke to his dad the night before he died or you have Mandy Moon talking about alcoholism and it running through the family and just being really that's that's what I mean like you couldn't put that next to like a drummer joke. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like once we started going down that road, that stuff was so honest and emotional and, and, and it meant so much to me that there was, cause it takes a certain trust factor to just be like, you know, let me tell you how it really is instead of just giving you like the funny answer and da da da. And uh, Mandy was the first person we actually interviewed for the movie. She's been a friend of mine for a long time. And, um, it, again, I, I think that also set the tone. Maybe if I had interviewed a drummer first, it w- we would have sort of led more musically. But starting with Mandy, who's not a musician, but obviously when your dad's Keith Moon, you know, I got to know what that's like. You know, that's 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 got to be unique. So it it really set the tone. And I'm really I'm really happy because um you know, sometimes sometimes, it, you know, it's not as funny of a movie as I tended to make. But in the end, I think it, it, you know, the emotions make give is more satisfying for people because you know you don't have to be a drummer to relate to some of the stories going on here. You, you just have to be a human being. 
Yeah, I thought something that she said was particularly interesting, which was, um, I'll paraphrase it, but uh, are you living the rock and roll lifestyle um, because that's who you were as a person or because that's what was expected of you ultimately because you're a rock star? It was kind of an interesting question she posed. Yeah, because can can you imagine what it's like? You know, like if you're Keith Moon's daughter and you go out to a bar and you're like, yeah, let's have some water. You know, I mean, there's like, there's <laughs> like there, I'm, I'm sure she's sober now, but I can, I can imagine the, you know, the, the, the people almost like encouraging you to, you know, like, we just want a piece of your dad. We just want you to act, you know, you have those genes and you know, what a, you know, especially since he's not around anymore, what, what, a, what a burden to bear. And so she, and the thing is too, is she's so sweet. She would tell she in the interview, she talks about these things that you listen back to what she's saying. And you're like, wow, that's really heavy. But she does it with this really sweet smile. And she's the most genuinely nice person I've ever met, probably. But she's had a real tough life and she's come out the other end and has a beautiful family and, and is and is happy and, and gives back to her her life and community. And, um, you know, she she's a success story. So it, it was it was great to to uh, start with her. And like I said, it really informed what kind of film we were going to make. So was there anything else that sort of struck you that was really surprising to you as you made the film? Um, just how long these now? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if anything was surprising. It was more just, um, I, I, I guess if I was surprised by anything was how everything I had planned to ask people and what in the film I thought I was going to be making would be changed just by people's honesty and the trust that they had that I wasn't going to take their story and do something completely horrible with it. Not that I still can't, but you know what I mean? I tried to make something that was really special for the people involved and for the people watching it. And I, I think, I guess the, I don't know, but see, I can't say I was surprised that, that because these people are all very genuine, warm hearted people. I think I, I think the, the, the word is I was more just I was honored that that they everyone gave me all the all that they did. And um, yeah, I mean, there there was little moments here or there, but I didn't have any of those like, oh, my God, I had no idea because um, I, I everybody in there I knew was going to be great. I knew it was had, had like you could do a movie. Each person in that movie, you could do their own movie about. They're all that interesting. So it was like a embarrassment of riches. Was there any common traits that you found between all the drummers? Um, yes, everybody had a really good answer to um, can feel be taught and everybody came at it from a different perspective, but it was really interesting to find out. Well, I guess here, this would be sort of one surprise. I didn't know uh, the actual time signatures that got people to go into trances. And so John Densmore started talking about the, the middle of light, my fire, they do three against four and it sends dancers out the Haitian dancers. And then I started thinking about deadheads and the way they dance. And just the thought that you could put a, you know, a time signature to, you know, to to create a, a, an emotional response from people I thought was really interesting. And everybody, from the Matt Storms of the world to the Stuart Copelands, you know, different kinds of drummers, you know, different versions of light and, and heavy music all had a really interesting response to, to the feel. And the movie was more about the feel than, you know, like, tell me how you played that. Just because, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a drummer. I didn't, you know, I didn't really, really want to know that. I, that answer, that, that that's for a different documentary. And that, that was the one question that everybody 
perked up to and really had their own perspectives on. So when you put them together, it was like they're answering their own sentences, but for their, their own brand of music that they all played. And Mickey Hart had a great, you know, so that, that was, that was really fun to, to explore because I didn't know that. I wasn't, you know, you, you go into these things and you have, you know, like, Oh, I've heard this person talk about that. And he's always really good with this stuff. And so you have, you have some of those cause you don't want to fail. And then when you start going to uncharted territory, that that's, that's when it gets really fun. So that, that that's the stuff that 90% of it made the cut. Well, and the one thing that struck me was that they all were drawn to the drums as in the minute that someone put a stick in my hand, that's what I knew I was going to be the rest doing the rest of my life. And this gets back to what you just said about feel. So maybe to some people, it just, it's that feel and they have it. And, and so that's why they, they're so drawn to the drums. Yeah, I mean, I, they, they, I mean, they say in the film that, you know, they don't, you know, the, the question that, that kept coming up is like, can you teach that or is that just something you're born with? And so that's kind of our reoccurring theme in the film, like are drummers made that way or, or, or you know, are they born, you know, or is it a learned thing? And, and um, in, in, in the context of the film, and it's a true story, um, Sting was doing some shows with the Grateful Dead. And Jerry Garcia and Sting were sitting at the bar talking about drummers because God, God knows why wouldn't you talk about drummers if you're Jerry Garcia and Sting? And that was that was the joke, you know. Do they become this way, or, or is this how they're created? So you <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, that you can't, you know, just 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 because I wanted to get that vision of Jerry and Sting sitting at a bar together. Like, first of all, that's just that's just great. And then just sort of thinking, like, the you know, the, uh, who knows what had brought up the drummer conversation, but they they both like lit up. They're like you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure some drummer jokes got thrown around between the two of them, but um, yeah, so that's one of our reoccurring little things that that uh, we touch on throughout the film. So, um, what would you like people to take away from the film? Is it just that that you're born with it, or is it is there something else? I just. Um... Well, first of all, I just want people to enjoy it. I, I hope that, uh, you know, it, they don't go, wow, that's 90 minutes of my life. I'm never going to get back. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not one of those people who have re any real lofty ideas in terms of, you know, I wasn't trying to send a message. I was just doing what felt naturally to me and what impacted me emotionally. And um, I hope Mickey doesn't mind me saying, for instance, when Mickey Hart saw the film, he called his son and, and said, wow, I just watched Justin's documentary and it made me realize how much we put drums ahead of you kids while you were growing up. And he, he apologized to him. I was like, wow, okay. That's, uh, I, I didn't see that coming. So, I mean, like that, that's just one of those reactions that's sort of beyond, like you don't even, you know, I, I did, I wasn't even prepared for that. So I, I just, you know, if anything, like I said, if it's, it's, it's secretly a, a film about, about, uh, about family. And so I guess the ultimate thing is if somebody sees something in there that, that speaks to them or they just, uh, I mean, a lot of, we touched on this earlier, the it's probably people probably think you have this amazing life. That's so much different than everybody else's. And on a lot of levels, it probably is, but on a lot of levels, family is still family. And if you're playing football backstage at, you know, Winterland or in your local high school, you're still, you know, you're still a family doing your thing. And so uh, I think a lot of that went into the film because that's what really spoke to me. And uh, so if people, can glean something from that that um you know like i said entertains them makes them happy or you know or if they look over and say you know that's why i wouldn't let you be a drummer you know job done as a person who loves music i loved it for all that it was musically but uh, it was just very heartwarming 
the stories oh, were were really beautifully told and very honest. And so I would recommend everyone go out and check out this film. Um, I have to ask you, does your dad grow anything on his uh, farm in Hawaii? Uh, well, there's sheep. Uh, <laughs> he, has a lot, he has a lot of farm animals um, and some mystery sheds. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, actually, uh, uh, my stepmother, Amy, she she's she grows. She's an agriculturist, agriculturalist. So uh, they, they have quite quite the farm set up over there. I don't know if you're speaking of, of, of marijuana or anything illegal. Well, I guess that's not even illegal anymore. Uh, as far as that goes, I don't think so. Just because, you know, who wouldn't want to steal like pot plants from the drummer of the Grateful Dead? But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, they live on a working farm. Yeah, like uh, I didn't know because it looked beautiful when I, when I saw the shots and your father talks about how peaceful it was and uh, having only been to Hawaii once, I thought it was just extraordinarily beautiful. And yeah. Put it this way. He lives there. Well, I mean, we did, you know, when we told the crew, we, we may have to go to Hawaii to interview my dad, like nobody complained. Like the, I bet know, not. Everybody, everybody <laughs> was like, you know what, we'll, we'll, for you, we'll go. All right, we'll do it. So. Well, Justin, it was a pleasure. I really Thank appreciate you. the fact that you took the time to talk with us about your film, let there be drums Great, great documentary. And um, come talk to us again about your next project. Oh, thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. I'll, 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 I surely will. If you'll have me, I'll come. You, anytime, anytime. Thanks so much. You take care. All right, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Justin Kreutzman about his new documentary film, Let There Be Drums. As the son of legendary Grateful Dead drummer, Bill Kreutzman, Justin provided us unique insight into the rock drumming world through his own experience, as well as through the eyes of the children of rock drummers and the drummers themselves. Thanks again to Justin for joining us on Insights. We appreciate his creativity and the perspective he shares throughout the film. From all of us here at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today. We hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 